Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history and culture. I'm your host, Diana, and this week we're continuing our series on tourist season in Paris. With over 1% of the population visiting each year, tourists have a broader impact on Paris than they do on just about anywhere else on Earth. But some tourists have more of an impact than others. This week, we'll talk about the overlooked history of occupation tourism and how one person's vacation may have saved Paris itself. This week, prepare yourself for a very unusual guest as we learn about Adolf Hitler's secret vacation. On Sunday, June 23, 1940, Paris was a ghost town. A profound silence rang out from every corner of the city, as though a catastrophe had wiped out every living thing but the pigeons. Around 5.45 a.m., the sound of rumbling engines whirred into existence, and a small cortege of black cars trundled their way down the street. They were in no particular hurry, with the convertible roofs down and the heads inside bobbing around, taking in the sights from left to right. None of the passengers seemed to be taken aback by the empty streets. Suddenly, after driving in silence for most of the journey so far, a man in the second car barked out orders, and the envoy pulled around behind the enormous facade of the Opera Garnier. As though sneaking their way in, the passengers filed out in an orderly fashion and ran up the front steps as quickly as possible. Once inside, they joined a white-haired janitor, hands behind his back, with his eyes resolutely forward, as though on the verge of a heart attack. He had been the one woken up in the middle of the night and dragged to work, keys in hand. He had been the one to light the lamps. He was now the one, playing impromptu guide to one of the strangest tour groups in history. Once inside, the men stood clustered at the audience behind their leader, the taciturn man who had barely spoken on the drive over. He was completely transformed by the splendor around him. With all the lights turned on, bouncing off the golden surfaces, the Opera Garnier was even more than he had imagined in his long years of dreaming, and the man's hands shook. Wonderful, uniquely beautiful proportions, he said. That is my opera house. From my earliest youth, it has been my dream to gaze upon the magnificent example of French architectural genius. His head turned from side to side, unable to take in all of the building's majesty at once. This is the most beautiful theater in the world. Strolling amidst the cushioned seats, the group made their way backstage, visiting the opera's legendary dressing rooms, inquiring about the building's renovations over the years, chatting politely before returning to the great staircase of the front lobby. 
The man turned around to his group, eyes wide, his arms outstretched. You must imagine the ladies in their ball gowns descending the staircase between lines of men in uniform. We must build something like this in Berlin. With this, Adolf Hitler and his men concluded their visit to the Opera Garnier and returned to the car to continue their tour. It had all happened so fast. Since 1939, France had been preparing for an inevitable German attack, imposing blackout orders, taking down the stained glass windows of the great cathedrals, and packing the crown jewels of the city into trucks bound for the countryside. The Mona Lisa, the raft of the Medusa, even the scenery of the theaters and the ballet. French dock workers were drafted into service, carrying precious statues down the steps of the Louvre, and hauling enormous sandbags to stack with great care around the city's landmarks. There was nothing for Parisians to do but wait and pray, until May 10, 1940, when the Germans made their move. Within a mere three weeks, the front line reached just outside Paris, and the great evacuation began. The refugees poured out of the city in cars, wagons, bicycles, and most often on foot, carrying mattresses above their head to protect from falling shrapnel. Within a few weeks of France's armistice treaty with Germany, nearly two million Parisians fled the city. When Adolf Hitler visited the city a few weeks later, the gates were wide open. Hitler was on top of the world. His blitzkrieg of France demonstrated the vast power and speed of his armies, and the rest of Europe trembled in fear of his next move. Where would he invade next? What would he do with all the resources of the French army added to those of the German army? Would he sweep across France into Spain? Would he use French ships to take on the British navy? As the world held its breath, the German high command waited for instructions from their leader. But as it turned out, at this critical juncture of the war, as the world held its breath to see what Hitler would do with his newfound spoils of war, the Führer climbed into an airplane and set off on a three-week art tour of France. Culminating on the morning of June 23rd, in an early morning stroll through the empty streets of Paris. In the decade between Hitler's rise to power and the war, a curious arm of the German administrative state emerged: the KDF, or Strength Through Joy. That is to say, the official tourism organization of Nazi Germany and the largest tour operators in the world. Why bother with state-sponsored tourism? As one writer noted, the KDF's ability to keep the cost of tour packages low compared to commercial tourism by arranging lodgings and private accommodation and negotiating low rail and bus fares conveniently dovetailed with the repeated insistence of its spokesmen that workers did not need higher wages to enjoy an improved standard of living. All of a sudden, the middle class of a slowly recovering Germany could afford to travel, and travel they did. By the outbreak of World War II, nearly 25 million Germans had participated in a state-sponsored tour. 
tourism was a way to calm class divides and show the Germans how good they had it under the Nazi regime. In one story, a coal miner enjoying a cruise through the Norwegian fjords was told that Kaiser Wilhelm himself had once enjoyed the very same vista. The coal miner replied, Under Adolf Hitler, we are all Kaisers. Tourism was, for the first time, available to the masses, and it was an increasingly essential facet of civilized society. So it came as little surprise that as soon as Hitler's armies began achieving victory across massive swaths of Europe, Hitler's own troops began itching to see the new sights. After exiting the Opera Garnier, Hitler's entourage continued down to the Place de la Concorde before turning up the grandest of avenues, the Champs-Élysées. Of course, without any shoppers, the Champs-Élysées is just a wide, flat street like any other, but Hitler admired the view and marveled at the skill of Baron Hausmann's ability to link together different views and roadways so beautifully. The heads continued to turn slowly from left to right as the group took in views of the Grand Palais and the Petit Palais, the legendary restaurant Fouquet's, closed, of course, and the empty cinemas still advertising a few recently released American films. Ahead of them, the Arc de Triomphe through which Hitler's troops would so famously march loomed large and quiet. Parking underneath the arch, Hitler stepped out of the car to admire the inscription, which he knew by heart. Pushing on, the cars made their way back down towards what they called the Eiffelturm, which Hitler praised for its lightness and distinctive character. In Hitler's eyes, the Eiffel Tower was, as one author put it, the harbinger of the new age when engineers would work hand in hand with artists. He was unable to do more but stand at the base of the tower, however, because when German soldiers had first arrived in the city with a swastika flag to fly from the top of the tower, they found the elevator cables cut. While the soldiers had raced up 1,665 steps to raise their flag, Hitler settled for a photograph on the Champ de Mars. In one version, he stands authoritatively with his men, with the tower looming over him in the background. In another version, he holds his hands clasped in front of him and looks off into the distance, as though posing for any ordinary snapshot. He looks like he wishes he had a selfie stick. It's the kind of photo you'd send to your mother to let her know you're having a fun vacation. With that photo checked off the to-do list, Hitler climbed back into the car. There was still so much to see. Jeder einmal in Paris. Everybody in Paris once. That was the promise. Every fighting man in the German army would get his turn in Paris, with a few weeks to stroll the famous boulevards, admire beautiful Parisian women, sit at cafes, peruse art museums, and of course, admire the architecture so beloved by the Fuhrer. Just as they had done back home, the KDF immediately set to work organizing official tours and itineraries for soldiers to make sure they saw the appropriate sites. The Eiffelturm, the Louvre, the Opera Garnier, and so on. The promise intoxicated the young men of Germany, many of whom had never ventured beyond their own national borders yet. 
In one interview, the German major in charge of the Eastern Front remembered the most popular request from soldiers fighting on the front lines in Russia. More than news from home, more than photographs from their loved ones, the soldiers in Russia requested above all else subscriptions to the Paris Troop newsletter, which outlined the tours and cultural activities available that week. The German soldiers poured into Paris at once, as the American ambassador witnessed at the time. Most of the German troops act like naive tourists, wrote the ambassador, and this proved a pleasant surprise to the Parisians. It seems funny, but every German soldier carries a camera. I saw them by the thousands today, photographing Notre Dame, the Arc de Triomphe, the Invalides. Thousands of German soldiers congregate all day long at the tomb of the unknown soldier, where the flame still burns under the arc. They bear their blonde heads and stand there gazing. An average of 2,910 German soldiers signed up for a tour group in Paris every day, with an estimated 800,000 German soldiers participating in the tours altogether. Others took time to relax and participate in the cultural atmosphere for which Paris was so famous. The KDF organized painting classes for soldiers on duty, often men recently returned from the front lines, who could finally relax and spend an afternoon staring out at the Seine with a sketch pad. As one 24-year-old soldier wrote in his diary at the time, although Paris was not pre-war Paris, it was still Paris, and its magic had its effect. Yet the soldiers also felt their own status as an outsider. Though the resistance had not yet grown in strength, and the frightened Parisians were rarely less than polite, as the same soldier wrote in his diary, even if I'm having fun here, I know that I don't really belong. Paris is magnificent, but foreign, and that is the bottom line. Standing in the heart of Les Invalides, Hitler's own emotional high point arrived while staring at the tomb of his greatest historical inspiration, the conqueror, the world-taker, the emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. The group was silent, and the room was dark, with windows covered up by sandbags. Hitler stared at Napoleon's tomb with his head bowed and his cap held over his heart. It was a moment he had been waiting for his entire life. Finally, after a long silence, Hitler turned to one of the members of his entourage, the architect Hermann Geisler, and he whispered, You shall build my tomb. On the way out of Napoleon's tomb, Hitler spied a statue of General Mangin, leader of the army which had occupied Germany in World War I. The mood shifted instantly. Have it blown up. Hitler announced to his retinue, we should not burden the future with memories such as this. Much of the leadership of occupied Paris had called the city home during earlier periods of their lives. After all, Paris in the 20s had been the capital of the world, and the young, hungry men who would grow up to run the Nazi party often spent their own youth enjoying the same cheap exchange rates and good times that Ernest Hemingway had done. 
One famous example is Otto Abetz, who married a French woman, spoke perfect French, and spent the late 30s hanging around in Parisian cafes until he was expelled by the French government on suspicion of espionage. They were right. Otto Abetz returned in 1940 as the German ambassador of occupied France. Yet for these men, Paris wasn't simply conquered territory; it was home. In their diaries, we see their delight to be back in Paris, even a quiet, abandoned Paris, mixed with their fears for its future, and their anxiety about their outsider status. As one official who had spent half his life in Paris wrote in his journals, "In the First World War, I was alone and free. I go through the Second War with all my loves and possessions." However, during the first war, I used to spend my time dreaming of the second war. Similarly, during the invasion of France, I was frightened not by the images which surrounded me, but by the humanity and devastated world I imagined for the future. After the Battle of Stalingrad turned the course of the war, touristic activities in France began to disappear. Extended curfews in 1941 ate away at the famous Parisian nightlife. Newsletters with tour itineraries start to mention closed metro stops without mentioning the resistance attacks, which had rendered them useless. Yet the Germans maintained an attitude of protection towards the city. By reducing the French into a stereotype of a decadent but refined population, Germany could pat itself on the back in two different ways. First, for being sophisticated enough to appreciate the fine cultural artifacts of the French people, and second, for retaining their essential Germanness and therefore their superiority over all other races. In other words, German protection of Paris and other French landmarks became a useful tool for propaganda. Look how civilized we are. Of course, the Jewish Parisians hiding underground in the countryside and fleeing for the border would beg to differ. Yet Paris had so far escaped relatively unscathed, even as, say, Moscow and Krakow were burned to the ground. As one German official wrote, "I experienced a strong feeling of joy, of thankfulness that this city of cities was getting through the catastrophe still intact." What a marvel it would be if she, like an ark laden to the brim with a rich old cargo, were to reach the port of peace after this deluge, and were to remain with us for future centuries. By eight in the morning, the summer sun was high in the sky, and the Führer was sweating as he approached the final landmark of his tour. Along the way, the first French citizens to wander out that morning were horrified to see their conqueror driving down the street. First, a newspaper man calling out to the empty sidewalks started to hail the passing cars. Realizing who was inside, the newspaper man fell silent, dropped his newspapers on the sidewalk, and fled. A short while later, a group of women clustered outside the marketplace recognized the oncoming tourists. They shouted. It's him! It's him! Before scattering in every direction, none of it fazed the Führer, however, who kept his eyes focused on the enormous facade coming into view, the Louvre. The museum, of course, was half empty at the time. 
Compared to the everyday men and women of Paris, the Louvre directors had taken warnings about a German invasion to heart. As I said earlier, for nearly half a year, the curators and conservationists packed their finest works of art and ferried them away to secrecy and safety. Nevertheless, the Fuhrer admired the enormous palace. I have no hesitation, Hitler announced, in pronouncing this grandiose edifice one of the greatest works of genius in the history of architecture. Finally, the group turned all the way around and climbed up the hill of Montmartre, where Hitler and his entourage took a last look at the city from the steps of Sacré-Cœur. By 9 a.m., they were on their way back to the airport. The trip had lasted a little under three hours. After the liberation of Paris, war tourism continued as steadily as ever, replacing Nazi sightseers with American troops. The GIs couldn't have asked for a better start to their tour than the welcome they received in the capital. As one private wrote of the liberation, it was the greatest night the world had ever known, a glorious night of wine, women, and song. In the months and years to come, the American soldiers dined for free at gourmet restaurants like Maxime's and the Tour d'Argent, the same restaurants that the Germans had exempted from rationing so that they themselves could taste the famous cuisine of Paris. Coco Chanel, eager to draw attention away from her affair with a German officer, gave away free bottles of Chanel No. 5 as souvenirs for the American soldiers to bring home to their girlfriends and wives. Meanwhile, the arts and entertainments, which had mesmerized Germans since 1940, were refurbished for American eyes, with the U.S. Army taking over music halls and flying over all kinds of celebrities to come entertain the troops. The War Department printed guidebooks for the troops, which opened with words I would love to hear from any boss. So far as your duties permit, see as much as you can. You've got a great chance to do now, major expenses paid, what would cost you a lot of your own money after the war. Take advantage of it. Well, you didn't have to tell the American Army twice. Once again, agencies mushroomed out of thin air to organize sightseeing tours, theater reservations, and restaurant guides for the troops. The first act of the reopened Office of French Tourism? An English language guide to France, opening with an apology for the delay in rebuilding the one and a half million homes destroyed by the course of the war. It's little wonder that around 10,000 American soldiers went to Paris for a temporary leave and never came back. On a typical day, 1945 Paris held up to 65,000 American soldiers. As Life magazine put it at the time, for many GIs, it adds up to an adolescent boy's dream of Paris come true, with some interesting grown-up overtones. When France had fallen to the German army in the summer of 1940, nobody was more surprised than the Germans themselves. Hitler planned for an ongoing siege, and he was prepared to strip France for parts by the time they finally conquered their oldest enemy. When France gave in, Hitler didn't know what to do with what he had won. The only explicit German policy towards France was to neutralize her and thereby force Britain out of the war. But what to do with France herself? Hitler was 
He was like a dog who had finally caught up with the ice cream truck and didn't know what to do with it next. At the height of his powers, with the world's full attention, Hitler did the one thing his military leaders didn't expect. He walked off the battlefield and took a vacation. For three weeks, Hitler traveled through France, visiting the trenches in which he had fought his first world war, surveying the beauty of the French countryside, and finally, taking his three-hour visit to the city of his dreams. After 30 years of wishing to see Paris, the former art student returned to his front lines with a curious strategy. Rather than march across France to join up with his allies in Spain, or seize the remaining military assets of the French army and navy, Hitler offered peace, an armistice, survival, for the country, for her people, and perhaps above all, for her treasures. By the end of the war, driven mad by military losses and staggering doses of methamphetamines, Adolf Hitler changed his mind about Paris. Like a spurned suitor, Hitler decided that if he couldn't have Paris, no one could. Why should we care if Paris is destroyed, he asked in the final days of the European theater. The Allies, at this very moment, are destroying cities all over Germany with their bombs. As Germany prepared to withdraw across France, soldiers affixed bombs to the city's bridges, roads, and even her landmarks, the very same precious monuments which Hitler himself had waited a lifetime to see. Yet the Fuhrer had made a mistake. After allowing himself to be mesmerized by the beauty and elegance of Paris, he did not realize the danger such beauty would hold towards his own leadership in the military as well. Years of living in Paris, of protecting Paris, of proclaiming Paris's iconic status, rang in the heads of Hitler's generals. Some of the military staff had spent their entire war in Paris. Others had spent their entire youths. If Germany was to be celebrated for her superior intelligence and sensitivity demonstrated by her appreciation of French culture, how could Germany destroy the heart of that culture? When the head of the Paris City Council heard of Hitler's mad plans, he rushed to find General Dietrich von Choltitz, whose finger would be asked to press the big red button. The councilman took the general out to the balcony of his beautiful suite at the Hotel Maurice and asked him to look out at the scenery. A pretty girl rode along the Seine on her bicycle. Children were playing in the park. A gleam of sunshine bounced off the Eiffel Tower. The two men stood staring out at the vast gardens of the Tuileries as the councilman spoke. Imagine that one day it may be given to you to stand on this balcony again, as a tourist, to look once more at these monuments to our joys, our sufferings, and to be able to say, One day I could have destroyed all this, and I preserved it as a gift for humanity. General, is that not worth all a conqueror's glory? On August 25, 1945, Hitler telegraphed his high command to confirm that the destruction had been carried out. The Führer asked, Is Paris burning? But General von Choltitz said nothing. 
The next day, Hitler picked up the phone to call the head of his Western Front directly and order the bombing raids to begin. General Hans Spadel picked up the phone and he promised to deliver the message to his superiors. But somehow, that message was lost. In the years following World War II, the same war tourism which helped determine the fate of Europe now shaped her future. As one historian wrote, soldier tourism was not simply a one-way imposition, but a reciprocal, if highly unequal, relationship. War tourism gave millions and millions of men and women the opportunity to see the world and, when they weren't bombing it, fall in love with it. German and American soldiers got up close and personal with the treasures of Paris, and their affection for the city may well have saved it, but at a cost. Tourism is a form of conservation. When millions of visitors pour their dollars into your city to see a particular landmark, you're going to keep that landmark in perfect condition, whether or not those landmarks have any value to the people who live there. For an example, here at home, Pier 39 in San Francisco is one of the biggest tourist attractions in the entire city, and I do not think a resident would notice if it burned down during the night. Tourism prioritized the desires and needs of German and American soldiers over those of actual Parisians, who often went hungry while soldiers dined for free. As manufacturing industries were bombed into smithereens, the tourist industry flourished. Think back to a small, modern example from the beginning of this series, the Lovelocks on the Pont des Arts. Is it worth accepting the tourist dollars of those who travel to Paris to hang padlocks on a bridge if it risks the destruction of the bridge itself, a bridge which is meant to serve the citizens of Paris? What happens when an entire city runs out of apartments because everything is listed on Airbnb? San Francisco is asking for a friend. What happens when an occupying army with cash to burn decides there aren't enough brothels in town? What happens when the needs of tourism clash head-on with the needs of the tourist destination? These are questions Paris struggles with today, and there aren't easy answers. Because whether tourists from another land are occupying Paris, or whether it just feels that way, it may be that Paris only exists to this day because those tourists went against impulses and orders and military strategy to save the city they had come to love. War, power, politics, Everything was forgotten, wrote the photographer Heinrich Hoffmann, who accompanied Adolf Hitler on his fateful day in Paris. He went through the buildings as if he were determined to carry every little corner in his memory forever. On the flight back, Hitler watched Paris disappear from view. During his two and a half hours, he hadn't eaten anything, hadn't held a conversation with a Parisian, hadn't even walked inside the Louvre. Nevertheless, 30 years after his own days as a struggling painter, when he had studied maps and photographs of the great city's architecture and her art, Adolf Hitler 
had finally visited Paris. It was the dream of my life to be permitted to see Paris, he said quietly to his companions. I am happy beyond words to see that dream fulfilled. Yeider and mal en Paris. Everybody in Paris once. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. To see photographs from Hitler's vacation, visit the show's website at www.thelandofdesire.com. Meanwhile, on The Land of Desire's Facebook page, we've all been discussing our own tourist jaunts in France. Want to talk about your travels? Share your favorite photos from your trip? Are you heading to France soon and want some recommendations? Ask your fellow Facebook Francophiles. Finally, did you know that The Land of Desire has its own guide to Paris? You can see my official recommendations for hotels, hostels, restaurants, even tourist attractions at www.thelandofdesire.com Paris. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing your comments and travel tips. Until next time, au revoir!